clusters and competitiveness, where we introduce you to the world of economic clusters, what they are, why they're important, and how they can bring unprecedented levels of innovation and prosperity to your region. I'm your host, Ian Gormley. Clusters and Competitiveness is produced by the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, a Canadian think tank based in Toronto. Through our conversations with those who work with and within clusters, we'll talk about what clusters can and can't do for your region. On our first episode, we discussed what a cluster is, as well as looking at how they can benefit economic development. Today, we dive further into the world of clusters, exploring how to manage their growth and hopefully putting to rest the notion that a cluster can be built from nothing. We'll also take a look at the town of Stratford, Ontario, as a case study in cluster development. First, though, let's get one thing out of the way. Unless you've got an unlimited amount of money and time, clusters cannot be sprung from nothing. As Paul DeFridis, a strategist and ermit economist who teaches at George Brown College's Institute Without Boundaries, explains, they tend to emerge naturally, often in unlikely places. This is a, almost a classic myth about clusters, that you can create them. The ones we know, the, the big famous ones, the Hollywoods, the Silicon Valleys, you know, the Milan fashion, they weren't planned. They emerge based on the sort of underlying conditions of the place. Every place has unique assets, has unique location, has unique culture. All these things add up to a possibility of a cluster. So clusters emerge based on that. If you go back and you study how Silicon Valley came about, it was never planned, wasn't even named. Silicon Valley until the 70s, but it has to do with San Francisco being a port. And if you trace back to its origins as a port, and that required uh, radio transmissions out to the fleet and crazy factors like, like the World War, which created a real demand side for some of the products in San Francisco. Those are the things that eventually lead to that becoming the famous Silicon Valley we know, but nobody planned that. And you see places like Saudi Arabia trying to create these clusters from nothing, and yeah, they can do that. You could throw infinite money at something. Absolutely, something will emerge there, but that's the wrong way to look at clusters. You have to look at it in terms of opportunity cost. That's not how you sustain your local economy, your cluster economy. It's sustainable because there's something there. And it's surprising how many people actually think you can create these things, and that's the wrong approach. Locate what's emerging, what's possible in your region. Identify where you can support do you need institutional support? Do you need a research chair? Those kind of things are really critical. You focus on that. You don't focus on how we build a cluster from scratch. So clearly something needs to be in place for a cluster to emerge, whether it's businesses, talent, or an academic institution. But as Bethany Moore, Director of Research and Insights at Toronto Global, a group mandated with attracting foreign direct investment into the Toronto area, explains that something can be more seed than full-grown plant. The right sort of support can maybe take what is not a lot and turn it into something kind of greater than the sum of its parts. Clusters are, are a series of ingredients, and, and you have to have, I think, a few of the ingredients to be able to make the cake. So you've got to have some companies <laughs> that are doing some interesting things, you know, and are kind of at the cutting edge of whatever industry that they're in. You need to probably have some access to capital because, you know, if clusters are fueling innovation, these are things that that they're going to need some money to, to support those kind of activities. And you're going to need kind of some of the right support mechanisms. So whether it's a supportive regulatory environment, the right sort of academic um, institutions or, or complementary programs and courses that are around. So I think you have to have a couple of the building blocks. But if you can identify that you've got a couple of the building blocks, even though maybe it's only small, with the right kind of support and targeted efforts, I think you can 
leverage that, you know, more than if you if you were just to leave it on its own. This is where you can also get creative because so if you've got an AI company and you've got an art school, I think this is sort of part of the beauty of clusters is it's about connecting two things that may not be obviously connected, but if you're able to kind of find the right connection, you're going to create something new. These art students perhaps bring a different type of thinking to artificial intelligence that, that, may, that may take it in a new direction or create some sort of new opportunity. Paul agrees and notes that figuring out what a given cluster is missing and being able to fill that gap is crucial to turning a small local cluster into a nationally or internationally significant one. Yes, you can't necessarily build them, but you can definitely ruin them and you can definitely support them and foster them, right? So the key is when, when you do see emerging signs of something, then there's an opportunity there to really support it because every cluster has gaps. It might be a talent gap, might be a research gap, might be a policy gap, might be a money gap, and a real regional sort of economic approach is to look for those gaps and really support. And those key initial supports can actually make the difference between the cluster emerging to be of national or global significance or just sort of continuing on its own path or, or whittling away. So the support systems are critical in supporting a cluster once it's emerged or even once it, it, it has emerged and it's trying to grow. Through its life cycle, it will have different needs and, and key supports at the right time make all the difference. But just whose job is it to grow a cluster? Local government? Industry? From the perspective of Dorinda So, Research Director at the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, it's a pretty clear-cut answer. The governance role from like the institute's perspective and that of a lot of research is really to support cluster growth. Ultimately, clusters is business-led, and it starts from kind of the bottom up. One of the reasons it's so clear-cut, she says, is because while governments work within clear geographical boundaries, clusters do not. So when you have a business looking to locate in, let's say, the Toronto region, they're not really going to be looking at, oh, is this Mississauga or Brampton versus the city of Toronto? because often they don't know where the jurisdictional boundaries are. Also, talent moves. You know, if there's a job there, they live somewhere else, they're going to get on, whether it's a car or transit, to get to work. So it's an issue because sometimes there is fights between government because they want that business to locate within their jurisdictional boundaries because that's a win for them. And one of the things that people need to recognize or just I think in general like when it comes to clusters is it doesn't really matter where they're locating because there's benefits that spill over um, into and often across jurisdictional boundaries. As Dorinda said it's up to business to identify their own strengths and shortcomings and as Melissa Pogue former clusters expert with the institute explains that's easier said than done. There needs to be some type of identification of what is necessary within that cluster. So thinking about what are the regional needs for that cluster and having some type of um, organizational body to help identify what those are and bring the cluster actors and stakeholders together. And at that point in time, having those people talk with public policy and government to help support those things in which are identified by the group of actors. As we've just heard, there's a lot that needs to be tended to in order for a cluster to be successful. And that, says Bethany and Melissa, is where something called a cluster manager steps in. What a cluster manager is able to do is bring some of these pieces together. You know, I think while, you know, from a company perspective, 
companies want to grow and be successful, but they may not always be thinking about how to connect to the other pieces to, to make that happen or, or, or kind of understand all of those opportunities. So I think what a cluster manager does is kind of take a, a look back to really identify what are the pieces that we do have, how should we connect them, what are other activities that we should be doing to enhance these pieces that we have. Um, the cluster manager brings all of the stakeholders together to talk through those issues and they can engage in dialogue with those members. They're able to help measure some of the activities that's there to identify the cluster's competitive strengths and needs and sort of identify sort of the different strategies that are necessary for different clusters. And so in that way, public policy can support those things which come out of those conversations. As well, public policy can support the general business conditions. So thinking about having a supportive business environment, having helpful taxation policies, thinking about having reduced red tape for certain activities that might prevent economic activity, and also supporting sort of specialized knowledge institutions um, such as universities and research places. And we do have some of these organizations in the Toronto region. Toronto Financial Services Alliance is, is one where um, they're involved in a, in a lot of different aspects of the cluster from talent development um, to regulatory support to sort of business development and growth that they are really able to talk to the companies, understand what their needs are from a talent perspective, ensure that the education um, system is creating the right kind of programs and the right kind of um, student experiences that are then going to support the companies in the financial services space. And then they're looking at the connection between traditional financial services and tech and this, um, you know, the emerging fintech hub that's happening in Toronto, which is new. So, you know, our regulations don't always support some of the new fintech innovations. And, and what the TFSA is able to do is also work with the regulators and ensure that these new ideas are being considered and, and that the regulatory environment is able to keep up. Dorinda says that ultimately, industry might opt for the formation of a broader cluster organization to help liaise between themselves and government. Sometimes you do need an organization, and these cluster organizations can then create memberships, like the different businesses can be a member of these organizations. So it can be done like that, but it needs to be businesses recognizing the importance of coming together. So I think the main difference between a cluster organization and sometimes an industry association is that cluster organizations typically do not lobby. They are not advocates in any way. Their main function is working with their members. It could be to market the cluster, but ultimately they're not going to be doing marketing campaigns directly. It's going to be all really for the different businesses within. And that's not to say the government can't be saying like, oh, you have something here, why don't you put something together and incentivize in that way. But ultimately they need to decide to come together and and kind of figure out what their objectives are because it's going to be different for every cluster and every region. Stratford, Ontario is known for two things the annual Shakespeare Festival it hosts, and for being the hometown of Justin Bieber. In many ways, these two phenomenon couldn't be further apart. But Sean Kerwin, theater set and costume designer and a graduate of George Brown College's Institute Without Boundaries, says that when looking at Stratford as a case study of a successful cluster, 
a theater one in this case, the Bard and the Beebs have much more in common than meets the eye. The theater culture is a very interesting model to look at because it is a world of constant invention and constant risk-taking and constant collaboration. Tom Patterson was the person who's, who had the idea to start the Stratford Festival. And uh, when he was growing up, he was growing up in a community where there were streets called Romeo Street. And there's a school called Romeo School. Characters from Shakespeare, uh, the words from Shakespeare, that they were not unusual. And there was a, a normal school which uh, the building still exists in the park right next door to the festival theater. The normal school for training teachers uh, used to put on Shakespeare plays. So when Tom Patterson was growing up, he would have, uh, he would have seen that as well. And so this idea of Shakespeare was not remotely unfamiliar. There had been a band shell in the park as well, and there had been at various times, conversations about doing Shakespeare in the in the park, uh, in the band shell. You know, he had the idea in his in his mind, and I think he approached the the city council in '52. I think initially to start uh, to start the ball rolling. Tom recognized that there was an economic decline. Stratford's beginnings are a far cry from the theater mecca it would later become, but the festival's roots lie in the city's industrial past. Uh, well, it became a village in 1832. Uh, it had a, a lot of the farming area around there was settled by English and Irish uh, settlers and Scottish settlers. Uh, the actual village itself, when it was named, people who were of British descent wanted to recreate something that would remind them of home. So they named the village Stratford, and there was a river called the Little Thames River, and they renamed that the Avon River. And the very first hotel in Stratford was the Shakespeare Hotel. So right off the bat, there were people yearning to reproduce something that would remind them of uh, a place they had emotional connections to. I think the idea that they had natural assets in the river. I think because of the railroad coming into Stratford, that was a huge influence. And the fact that there were two railroads uh, that were competing led to the area being able to also then build a locomotive repair shop. And that became an important anchor in the town. And because of the proximity to the US, and also the fact that it was in an area of really good farmland, the ability to move goods back and forth became really important. There was a huge impact on the, um, because of the presence of the river too, because ultimately they started developing parkland quite consciously. And so they had a place that had transportation, uh, a place that had some natural beauty, and uh, a place that had a reference to this famous dead British playwright. It, somewhere around the 1850s, I think, 1860s, the first furniture factory opened. And um, again, I think the rail lines uh, were very important in keeping that going. Stratford was at one point the largest furniture manufacturer in Canada. And they actually had, they would invite people to have a kind of a, a kind of a trade show in the town of all the furniture manufacturers. And they were shipping furniture 
across the country. Uh, they were shipping it out of country. And it was a very important industry. So it was a very important part of the economy up until it started to turn in the 30s for various reasons. The rail lines started to feel the pinch of the rise of the automobile. And as more people got cars and the rail lines were less critical, uh, that I think had a big influence. So there was a bit of a downturn for these two things that had been sort of economic staples of the town. Tom Patterson, a journalist from McLean's Magazine, wasn't the only person in town with an entrepreneurial spirit. Stratford's history is littered with examples of creative ingenuity in the face of economic uncertainty. That, more than any sort of government intervention, is the basis of any strong cluster. There was a town or a, a, a small city where there was a, a culture of starting things. This idea that all these furniture factories got going and that they were making things. That it was a place where there were people who took initiative uh, to set things up. And I think that's important because I think when Tom uh, approached uh, the city council with this idea, which when you think about it was totally crazy, you know, they didn't laugh him out of the room and they were willing to listen to him. That's really important, I think. This nice. idea that you can have a culture where things can start. Uh, you know, many people may know that the first uh, season was in a tent and that a lot of local people were hired to kind of get things up up and running. And as the festival, I think the first season, the first season they did two plays, and they were able to gradually sort of build on the number of plays they did, and more people then came into the town to watch plays. As more people came into town to watch plays, then the hospitality industry had to start developed it wasn't that there were no restaurants there before but or or hotels or bed and breakfast but certainly that whole side of things started to grow as the festival grew also when they took over the avon theater which had been a movie theater prior and started performing there and all of a sudden they had two venues to fill and as they had two venues to fill, then, of course, it started to build. Well, more people are coming in. More people are coming in. They're all going to have, you know, they're going to want something to eat uh, or someplace to stay. And it kept growing and growing kind of a piece at a time, you know, over a period of from the 50s to 2002. Bit by bit, as they added more uh, you know, then it meant that there were more people coming into the town every day. And when you think about the number of people to fill all those venues on a day with matinees and evening performances, it's pretty phenomenal. The festival was an immediate hit, thanks in part to the talent Tom Patterson was able to recruit. English director Tyrone Guthrie anchored the first season along with actor Alec Guinness, then still two and a half decades from his appearance in Star Wars. And as we've discussed previously, competitive advantage took hold and talent began to attract more talent. Uh, you know, a lot of people came. And at that point, Alec Guinness, you know, was, was uh, a very highly regarded stage actor. And uh, I, think, I think he was a big draw. I think the, the festival's location, having proximity to the U.S., you know, people could come over the border quite, quite easily at that time. Um, and... Uh, at that point also, there was not a lot of uh, professional theatre in Toronto. But at the time, uh, the only theatre really that you could see 
regularly in Toronto would have been shows coming to the Royal Alexandra, shows that were normally kind of British imports or American imports. Uh, there wasn't uh, the kind of uh, indigenous theatre culture that has grown since then. Uh, so it, it, it was a place to go and experience theatre without a lot of immediate competition. The festival's success began to create spillover effects as new theatre groups popped up. And in an effort to differentiate themselves, they often had mandates that put them in direct opposition to Stratford. Soon those spillovers started to reach outside the immediate realm of theatre as well. I think 1967 was very influential. When I started working in the theatre in the early 70s, uh, you know, there was a lot of investment in startup culture, if you will. Lip grants, I, every theatre company that I know of in Toronto that was starting, and they, they were starting an incredibly rotty environments, uh, but they were able to get funding. Regional theaters across the country as sort of centennial projects were getting started. The companies across the country were, were being supported as a way of celebrating the fact that we were a hundred years old officially as a country. But I think that one of the things that uh, set Toronto apart differently was that uh, it it was also interested not just in doing uh, plays by Americans or plays by British, and that uh, there there was a, a kind of a sense of having writers that were Canadian writers writing about things that uh, came from our own culture and that were not British imports uh, or American imports. So on one hand, you had the festival uh, being able to do you know all this classical work. And, and having, uh, you know, a lot of um, people who brought, who, who came in from England. Um, and then you also had this also, this, this kind of alternate movement that started, which was uh, companies that were very consciously creating work that had a Canadian voice. And I think that then you had kind of two parallel streams going. And it provided uh, a lot of opportunity, I think, for people like myself, who, uh, when I started working in the theater, basically you had to go to Britain or you had to go to the US. And that's changed drastically since that time. We have a strong uh, Canadian voice, I think. For instance, there were years when uh, people like Duke Ellington were coming to Stratford to compose scores. There were there were for plays. I mean, there were uh, amazing people coming in to work at the festival, uh, who were musicians. Um, also, there were a series of summer music, uh, Stratford summer music music festivals that started. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, culture of m music. There were a lot of opportunities, I guess, for. Uh, presentations for the public to come and recognize music and enjoy music. In the, you know, in the 70s, there was a cafe in Stratford called the Black Swan, which was kind of an alternative, as think as the alternative theater movement was, was developing in, in Toronto and certainly in other parts of Canada, but that Black Swan at Stratford was kind of the alternative hangout from the British festival. And so as there was this push away from that kind of colonial sensibility of being British. Then people like Lorena McKenna, who I remember busking outside the Festival Theatre, you know, who I think also may have been influenced by that kind of alternative music scene that came out 
earlier on in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. And then, you know, of course, we all know about Justin Bieber sitting outside the Avon Theater busking as a little kid, you know. But I'm sure he was, you know, they, like he was growing up in a culture where people were coming to see theater and people could busk outside the theaters and, you know, I, I mean, so, you know, again, I think this, this idea that um, you have something that brings people in to a place for a certain kind of experience, uh, which in this case, you know, was a, a kind of cultural experience, you know, to, to see something, to also then spend time uh, eating or staying overnight or, you know, I mean, the restaurant culture in Stratford is uh, extraordinary when you think about the scale of the, the city and uh, the chef school opening up. I mean, it opened up because they needed more people to be well-trained to be able to provide uh, the restaurants with the, with the people they needed because so many people were coming into the town. So, you know, all these things fit together in really interesting ways. Uh, because you have this high turnover population coming in on a regular basis and wanting to have a good time. Today, the Stratford Festival shows no signs of slowing down, even as the city itself begins to diversify and embrace the possibility of new technologies. Yet, even the emergence of a new cluster wouldn't have been possible without the original. <clears throat> I think in terms of the, the city, it's, it's having a very interesting period as well because it, it's actually... Uh, with the University of Waterloo setting up the Stratford campus, uh, which I think opened in 2009, um, you know, that's a very interesting uh, development. Uh, with Stratford being the only city in Canada to be testing driverless cars, that's a very interesting development. I think uh, one of the things that the city has done, the fact that they have made Wi-Fi a utility or that they've got a secure they have recognized that digital technology uh, is important and that internet access is important and uh, because they have a secure system in place because they were planning that in their sort of infrastructure that that was one of the reasons that uh, you know the testing of driverless cars happened uh, or that Stratford was chosen and I have a friend in Stratford who in less this past winter was describing to me what it was to watch the driverless cars being tested in the Stratford theater parking lots there's these big parking lots for the theater and now they could be testing driverless cars I think that the the city and the theater are, are and the festival are you know at a really interesting point in time but they seem to be willing to be forward look and be willing to kind of encourage a kind of a you know a, an entrepreneurial sort of culture I guess that brings us to the end of this episode of Clusters and Competitiveness. Hopefully Sean's case study helped to illustrate the natural and, quite frankly, haphazard manner in which clusters emerge. This is the second in a series of podcasts exploring some of the most asked questions about clusters, as well as many of the issues currently facing their growth, both in Canada and across the globe. Clusters and Competitiveness is produced by the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, a Canadian think tank focused on raising the competitiveness and prosperity of the province of Ontario. The Institute is also the host of the 21st TCI Network Global Conference on Clusters, taking place in Toronto from October 16th to 18th, 2018. For more details, visit www.tci2018.org. Clusters and Competitiveness was written and produced by myself, Ian Gormley. Our thanks to everyone who participated in this podcast for their time. Once again, I'm Ian Gormley. Thanks for listening.